0: Again, it's my microphone worked. There we go. Um, I forgot to announce this earlier this morning, but um, Hebrews 13 tells us to remember our leaders, our elders, and those who have gone before us in righteousness, and to remember their life uh, and to uh, set them as a model for our own lives. And this Saturday, we want to do. Just that for our brother Lawrence Silva, who passed away a year ago. There will be a memorial service here Saturday morning at 10 a.m. And all are invited to come and worship to God together. They'll be singing, preaching, and to remember a godly life well lived. And Dr. Lawrence Silva. So you're invited there. Let me read from our passage this morning, Song of Solomon chapter 8, starting in verse 5 and all the way through verse 14. Song of Solomon 8, 5 through verse 14. Who is that coming up from the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? Under the apple tree I awakened you, there your mother was in labor with you, there she who bore you was in labor. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is strong as death, jealousy is fierce as the grave, its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. We have a little sister. She has no breasts. What shall we do for our sister on the day when she is spoken for? If she is a wall, we will build on her a battlement of silver. For if she is a door, we will enclose her with boards of cedar. I was a wall, and my breasts were like towers. Then I was in his eyes as one who finds peace." Solomon had a vineyard at Baal Haman. He led out the vineyard to keepers. Each one was to bring for its fruit a thousand pieces of silver. My vineyard, my very own, is before me. You, O Solomon, may have the thousand, and the keepers of the fruit two hundred. O oh, you who dwell in the gardens, with companions listening for your voice, let me hear it. Make haste, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of spices. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning that you've given us and for your word. Lord, your word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, able to pierce between bow and marrow and into the deepest depths of our soul and hearts. Use it now by your spirit to guide us and give us wisdom, that it might be a light to our path, that we would be encouraged and sustained by it, Lord, convict us of sin through it. The Lord, by your Spirit, also encourage us in faithfulness. We pray these things to your glory and in Christ's name. Amen. So here we are at the end of our series through Solomon's Song of Songs. Perhaps it would be good for us to remember why we've preached through this book in the first place. I wonder... How's it been so far for you? Fun? Awkward? Uncomfortable? Encouraging? I've enjoyed it. Firstly, I think we need to remember that simply this this is God's inspired word, right? And all of God's word ought to be preached before God's people. I think that this book and therefore the topic of intimacy and marriage, which this book addresses, shouldn't be preached. Well, I think... That's to think that God doesn't know what he's doing. He does. He inspired this good word. May we as a church desire, I pray, nothing more but the pure milk of God's word. May we be like the Berean church, testing everything against the truth of God's word. Woe to us when we enjoy and desire cute stories, anecdotes, how to live your life better sermons over and against expository sermons and verse-by-verse preaching. And that's what we wanted to do with this book. If I can give a note to those of us who are seniors and elders among us, as you have no doubt probably noticed, a lot of the application have been to younger and, and, and even the single folks. But for those who are elders among us, it may be that the time for intimacy has long passed, which is a normal part of aging within marriage. Indeed, when intimate passion wanes, the beauty of deep friendship begins to grow even stronger. That's a huge blessing. But here's where I think and my encouragement to you fits in to this culture and context. You have been through the ups and downs of marriage and have walked the long walk of love. And as you approach the end of life here, your wisdom and biblical insight becomes invaluable for the younger members among us. I think this recent poem, written by John Piper for his wife, Noelle, expresses beautifully the joy of marriage in later life. They're both in their 70s, and this is what he wrote, I think, a couple weeks ago. How many petals yet will fall before the aging stems are bare? How many losses till the call for us, my friend, to join her there? But if you count them, though they sting more than babes of Bethlehem, mark this, as long as Christ is king, my love will not be one of them. He's praising here the longevity and the enduring power of true Christ-centered covenantal love. My brothers and sisters here this morning who have been married for 30, 40, 50 plus years, praise God, your insights into love, that long view of love, they're invaluable to the rest of us. They're needed. And I think the Song of Solomon gives you the proper guidelines and the theology on how to talk about these things. I pray you've benefited from this book and that it has stirred you to seek out and and perhaps help guide younger members of this church through the ups and downs of marriage. Well, our text this morning, I think, is about that. It's about love. A long, a long-lasting, powerful love. In fact, I think we get a great definition of love here. Granted, it's poetry, but nonetheless, love is being described and defined, and and that definition, I think, will serve to to help our outline for the sermon. So we, we see in our text here three things about love. First, Love is powerful. Secondly, love is a treasure. And thirdly, love is unending. Love is powerful, a treasure, and unending. Let's work through the text and and see each of these in turn. Now, verse 5 sets the the scene for us with a question, right? Who is that coming up from the wilderness? I think... This is the daughters of Jerusalem speaking here. It was those daughters who were just addressed in verse 4. So it makes sense to me that they'd now be asking this question. If you remember, the husband and and the wife have just been reconciled after their little tiff. And they went off to the wilderness, you know, to enjoy the fruits of marital reconciliation. But now they're coming back. and, And so the scene seems to be not one of intimacy and pleasure, but... But rather, what's being described here is more powerful than that. It's it's friendship and companionship, right? Trust and unity. Look at verse 5 again. Who is that coming up from the wilderness leaning on her beloved? It's the bride. and, And she's leaning on her beloved husband. And it's significant that they're coming out of the wilderness, right? To those who know their Bibles, leaving the wilderness is reminiscent of Israel leaving the wilderness and entering into the promised land, back into Eden, place where God dwells. So the wife and the husband are, are doing just that here. Our commentators disagree as to where they are in their marriage at this point. Are they just coming out of their honeymoon? Is this a picture of them in their 70s looking back over their marriage? I don't think it really matters. The images of her leaning, resting, her tender, affectionate closeness with sweet hints of her depending on her groom. Didn't we just sing of that earlier when we sang out of our dependence on our perfect groom, Jesus? Leaning, leaning, safe and secure from all alarms. Leaning and leaning, leaning on the everlasting arms. Friends, here's a proper picture of the power of love. It's, it's tender and it, and it looks like a wife trusting intimately in the leading of her husband as she leans and leans and leans upon his arms. Doug O'Donnell asks the appropriate question here. Husbands, are you lovably leanable? He says he's never met a Christian wife complain about me being married to someone who is respectable and easy to submit to because he lovingly leads like Jesus Christ. He's never had a counsel for that. Is that not what we see husbands are to be? from Paul's command in Ephesians five, where he says, "The husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church?" No doubt Paul says a husband is the head of his wife. Not ought to be. Paul isn't offering a suggestion, but rather an inescapable statement of fact. All husbands lead. It's just a question really, of whether they're doing so horribly or righteously, and in Christian selfless love. Christ, who leads us as prophet, priest, and king, I think provides for us an example for husbands to do so likewise. Leading husbands as prophets and bringing God's word to bear on all aspects of the marriage. Leading your families in family devotions and family worship as you read nightly through the Bible with them. Husbands can lead as priests, and constantly interceding for their wives, lifting them up in prayer and making sure that there's, there's reconciliation. The priestly husband being the first one to say, I'm sorry. Or the first one to say, I think you sinned there. Leading their families all together in unity. Husbands, are you doing that? And I think they ought to be leading as kings. Always seeking to protect their wives. And serving their wives and bringing them happiness and peace. And find me a husband who's doing that and I'll show you a wife who is a queen. Leaning in full submission and contentment in her godly husband. Now The woman speaks in the rest of verse 5. Telling her husband that under the apple tree I awakened you. There your mother was in labor with you. There she who bore you was in labor. What's going on here? Language is a bit strange, talking about apple trees and and the guy's mom giving birth. I think what she's doing here is saying, basically, as we return home out of the wilderness, I find myself delighting in your leadership more and more as my husband. And when intimacy is awakened, right, that's the language of being awakened under the apple tree. When intimacy is awakened, it's more than just pleasure. Pleasure. I'm not just after that. Rather, it's the fruit of our love. Children that I'm thinking about. Just like when your mother was in labor with you. Verse 5, I think, gives us a metaphor then. Linking what the apple tree represents, intimacy, with the joyful results of intimacy. Children, she's, she's drawing out the intimate relationship between intimacy and children, cause and effect. When the husband and wife get together, it's very possible that children... Come out of that. Well, the apple tree leads to the family tree. And and this brings out aspects of how powerful, I think, marital love can really be. It it shows that it's bigger than just the husband and wife. She's not just thinking about herself here and the enjoyment to be had in her husband. She's, She's thinking generationally. Their love is bigger than just the two of them. Here, underneath the pleasures of the apple tree... They gladly carve their names into the family tree and look forward to adding their children's names and their grandchildren's name and their great-grandchildren's name. Friends, that's a powerful component to covenant love. All of this leads her to what I think is the climax of this whole section in verses 6 and 7. These are literally my favorite verses in the whole Song of Songs. She says, Set me as a seal upon your heart, As a seal upon your arm. For love is strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. It's flashes are flashes of fire. The very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench it. Neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. She is so moved by the power of their love that she... She asks him to set her as a seal upon his arm and his heart. Now you, you know what a seal is. It signifies identity with or even ownership of something. And here the woman saying, I want to be an intimate part of every part of who you are. Wear not only a wedding ring to show everyone else, but make me to be a ring around your heart. The very seed of your thoughts and emotions and will. And as you look down and, and, and see the seal on your arm, I want you to think of me when your heart and your mind and emotions get going. Why? Well, because our love is as strong as death, a, a jealousy as fierce as the grave. You see what she's saying here? She's reaching for an image that can come close to describing the love they share for each other. And she finds that image, ironically, In death, in the grave, death can't easily be challenged, can it? it? Death is a tenacious force, and when it comes calling, what human has the power to resist it? Once people enter into the grip of death, there is no release. The grave keeps everyone it holds. That's the kind of love she's sharing, a, a tenacious, single-minded, permanent, and unchanging force. And our use of the word jealousy here shouldn't throw us off. We, we usually think of jealousy as a, as a negative thing, and a lot of times it can be. But not always. God is constantly described as a jealous God. And here in the context of marital love, jealousy is beautiful and passionate. It's the assertion of their rightful claim upon one another. And so it's, it's a jealous zeal to make sure nothing or no one gets in the way of their love for one another. No man has the right to look at my wife the way I enjoy looking at her. And no woman has the right to whisper to me what only my wife can whisper to me. Within marriage, love and godly jealousy go intimately together. Love is not only as strong as death or as fierce as the grave. she, She takes it up a notch. Love flashes, and are the flashes of fire the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. What an image. Here's the only time that God is brought up in the entire Song of Solomon. And it's his covenant name too, Yahweh. I think we should be immediately reminded of the very place where God revealed this name. Where was that? In a flame, right? Remember, Moses saw a bush that was burning and yet the bush was not consumed. And out of that flame, God reveals that he is Yahweh, the I am who I am. Yahweh who is pure being, pure act, eternal and without beginning, unchanging, never growing, never learning anything, never in need of anything. Not made up of anything, but is within himself pure, simple, and every part of himself fully divine. Is she saying that her love is like that? Well, not exactly. God is God, and, and love is not God. But, but she's saying the love which they share has components which sure seem to be a lot like God. It's powerful and and permanent and unchanging, it somehow fuels itself to keep on going. Just like the fire didn't need the bush to burn, so too their love doesn't need anything to keep on burning. When he gets old or, or when she gets old, ugly, grumpy, and weak, it's amazing. They still keep on loving each other. In fact, in verse 7, she brings up another Exodus image. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. The image is that their love is like like that burning bush, but now at the bottom of the Red Sea, after the waters have come together and over it, and guess what? It's still burning. There with millions of gallons of water over it, still burning brightly with heat and passion and the smoke rising up through the floods. Friends, that's love. No wonder, she says, if a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. What fool would put a price tag on that kind of love? It's priceless. I met with Bug and Anita uh, not too long ago, and Bug told me the story of how he met his wife, and soon after that they got married in a small barn-like church in North Carolina with, I think, three other people there, and they were young. and, And the pastor there married them, and then after the service which was really short. The pastor kind of got Bug to the side and um, said, all right, everything good? And, and Bug said, oh, it's great. How much do I owe you? And the pastor looked at him and says, well, how much is she worth? <laughs> and Bug said, well, I've only got $10 to my name. <laughs> and the pastor said, give me five and I think you'll be all right. And, and they've been married for, for a long time and are still deeply in love. I want to suggest here as a way of caution that, that that kind of love actually first needs to be committed to ever, ever before being felt. You know, like that, that great phrase theologians like to throw around, the one that Al- Anselm coined, I believe in order to understand. Or the love being described here doesn't, doesn't wrap you up in its power first and then you come to really believe in love. You believe in it first without really knowing the feeling of it. The fruits of it. Or in other words, you commit yourself first. And then as you grow in your love for your spouse, well then, then you begin to understand. Then you begin to see what the woman is talking about here. I think that flies in the face of our modern Hollywood culture. What tells us that we need to fall in love ever before we make a commitment. I hear that commitment comes first. Again, for those of us who have been married for decades and have gone through the ups and downs of marital love, this is precisely where you come in with your years of wisdom. Showing younger wives and and, and older husbands, counseling younger husbands to not give up. Don't quit. You don't feel love right now, sure, but, but keep on committing yourself to your spouse. Believe, then you'll feel it, you'll know it, you'll understand it. So there's the first part of our definition of love in verses 5 through 7. It's it's powerful. Power too great to fool around with haphazardly, but but oh so great in the midst of of marriage. In the next part of the passage, verses 8 through 12, we see that, that love is a treasure. Or to put it differently, it's a treasure that needs to be protected. Specifically, it's a treasure that needs to be protected in every part of life. It begins with what I think are the women's brothers, who we saw in the first chapter, now offering advice on how the treasure of love should be protected with young unmarried girls. Look there in what, what they say in verse 8. They say, we have a little sister, and she has no breasts. What shall we do for her on the day when she is spoken for her? In other words, they're, they're describing their, their little sister who has not yet reached the appropriate age of love. She's, she's prepubescent. And they're asking, what what do we do for her if someone comes to speak for her hand in marriage? The answer is simple and, I think, profound. They say, if she's a wall, we will build on her a battlement of silver. But if she's a door, we will enclose her with boards of cedar. They're describing two different possibilities here. Two different kinds of girls. One is a wall, right? a wall being meant to keep people out. And the other is a door. A door being the means by which a person may enter. If she's a wall, a girl who is chaste and protective of her purity, well, they say, we're going to do our best to beautify that wall, building on her a battlement of silver. In other words, we're going to add to the battlement in order to keep people out, but we'll cover it in silver in order to attract that right future husband. Remember, in those days, marriages were usually arranged and then negotiated between families. Now, if she's a door, a girl who's promiscuous, well, they say, we will enclose her with boards of cedar. Notice they still pick the most beautiful wood in order to make her as attractive as possible to future suitors, but but they're building her in, keeping her enclosed as much as they are keeping the wrong guys out. It's protective. Now, again, we can't forget this is all poetry. I don't think I'm meant to apply this perhaps as much as I want to, That as a dad, I'm going to start making blueprints to seal off my daughter and seat her room until she's the age of 30. I think we should apply this, perhaps suggesting that when girls are growing up, we should do our best to guide and instruct them on what true love is. Guarding them from ruining that treasure they hold within themselves. That love. Protecting them from giving it to the wrong person or just any person. Now, the woman chimes in in verse 10, and she gives us instruction on the next stage of life. She says of herself, I was a wall, and my breasts were like towers. In other words, I was was a grown woman and ready for love, but even at that time, I was a wall. I protected that treasure of love within me. What was the result of her protection? Well, she says in the rest of verse 10, Then I was in his eyes as one who finds peace. That is, when she did meet the man she was going to marry, (laughs) there was a beautiful peace between them. The treasure had been protected for herself and for him, and the result was a peaceful enjoyment of love. To those of you who are single but desire to enjoy the fruits of love, this is a masterful passage on the goodness of waiting. She was in his eyes as one who finds peace. Friends, that that peace of heart, that calmness and joy in your spirit which you can bring to your relationship is invaluable and priceless. The peace of knowing you've kept yourself for one person and one person only. it's, It's the gold ring with which the diamond of love is set. Hold on to that dearly, young men and women. If you've lost that peace, and you now know the inner turmoil and heart pangs of not having fully protected your love, to you I say bring your heart to the Prince of Peace and find comfort in Him, real comfort in Him who forgives all and, and gives anybody, no matter what they've done, a new beginning. In Jesus Christ, we really can be new creatures, born again to a new and living home. And know the mistakes of our sins, of our past still and will reverberate into our future. In Christ, there is a fuller future of peace which will soon make all our decisions here and in the past, nothing but mere footnotes in the eternity of glory. If you're here as somebody who doesn't know Christ, who hasn't felt the conviction or repented of sins, I'll come to him now. It is good to come to him as a Prince of Peace rather than as a judge I pray that you know him. In verses 11 through 12, we get the third stage of life where she seems to be describing a person who's already married and is known marital love. But now the woman, I think, is setting up King Solomon against her own experience. Look at verse 11. Solomon had a vineyard at Baal Haman. The vineyard here seems to be a metaphor for marriage, intimacy, and love. Solomon had a vineyard, and he led out the vineyard to keepers. Each one was to bring for its fruit a thousand pieces of silver. The picture in verse 11 seems to be a depiction of Solomon's foolishness in giving his love to countless wives and concubines. The vineyard's name, Baal Haman, literally translates as lord or husband of a crowd. The metaphor is straightforward. Solomon had the means to acquire and enjoy a crowd or a multitude of wives. 1,000 women. And it seems for 1,000 pieces of silver, he employs others to take care of his wives as if his harem were a commercial farming enterprise. He does not and cannot know the treasures of true godly covenant love. In verse 12 then, we get the beautiful contrast of the woman's experience. In contrast to Solomon's wealth and many, many, many women... The woman here only has one vineyard to give, and her husband, unlike Solomon, is completely satisfied with the fruit she produces. You, O Solomon, may have your thousand, and the keepers of the fruit, two hundred, but as for me and my husband, the treasure of our own monogamous love is more than enough and satisfying. In fact, it's perfect and exactly what God intended. What she's saying here husbands, wives, Enjoy your spouse. Even though you're married, the wall of protection must not come down. The treasure of love can still be lost and forfeited. To think that just because you're married, there's no more need to protect the treasure of love is to become just like Solomon and let your wall down and come to utter ruin. Well, we've seen how love is powerful, we've seen how love is a treasure. Lastly, let's see how love is enduring or unending. Verses 13 through 14 form not only the epilogue for this section, but really for the entire poem. Here the husband and the wife speak directly to one another. And here in verse 13, the husband speaks to his bride. "O you who dwell in the gardens with companions listening for your voice, let me hear it. Throughout the song, the garden has been the place where love and intimacy has been present. So to say that his wife dwells there permanently is to say that she and therefore he is... They're constantly surrounded by love. And yet, there's, there's companions constantly listening, listening in for her voice. Who are these companions? Are they the shepherds that we ran into earlier? The young Jerusalem women? We've seen a number of different people listening in and, and peeking in throughout the song... But here all of them seem to be in a position of listening attentively, quietly giving their ears so that they might understand more about marriage. Is this Solomon's way of saying that we too were to continue to learn from this couple? Or perhaps more broadly, we're to give our ears and attention to those godly couples who have weathered the storm and enjoyed the fruits of an enduring and long-lasting marriage? I think so. Marriage is a covenant and community Institution, not just a private island for a husband and wife to enjoy alone. Younger brothers and sisters who aren't yet married, watch older married folks and learn from them. Younger married folks, watch the older married folks and learn from them. This is a good and community thing to do. But Look in verse 12. The husband also longs to hear his wife's voice. He's captivated by her charms and insights. And even now, over all these years, as as they come to the end of their own love story, how does she answer in verse 14? Well, surprisingly, she tells him to flee. Make haste, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountaintops. Where does she tell him to flee to? Well, herself. Make haste and come away to me like a young stag on the mountaintops. A vivid image of of marital intimacy. The song of Solomon began with an unwedded fiancé desiring the kisses of her soon-to-be husband, but sending him away in protection. Oh, I long for the kisses of his mouth. She was a wall, and the time for love had not yet arisen. But now, at the end of the song, she boldly and beautifully calls for that same man, now her husband, to come and give her kisses and more. But then the poem ends. Just like that. We actually don't see or don't read of them actually coming together, do we? I mean, throughout the entire poem, there's been this this unquenchable thirst for intimacy. The two yearning like, like two strong magnets for one another. And that passion, that desire is present all the way up to the last line. And this is the Song of Songs. We've got to expect that passion. And he says to her, I desire to hear your voice. And she responds, make haste and come and join me. And then that's it. It's over. The end. The Song of Songs ends with the two lovers wanting to touch, but but not yet touching. We're left, as readers, longing, almost with the same kind of longing that they had at the beginning of the poem. I think one commentator is absolutely right when he says that the song intentionally ends abruptly and inconclusively because the song is not done. Their love is not done. And by application, love in general is not done. Or to put it differently, God, who is love, is not done with his great love song and love story. This is why I titled the last sermon, Virginity in the End Times. The Song of Songs ends with this eschatological, this this end times angst. Look in your Bibles and tell me what the very next book is after the Song of Songs. It's Isaiah, right? The prophet who's going to spend this long next book telling us about the coming of a Savior An end times Messiah who will love with a divine love. And then from Isaiah we travel and read through the prophets. And then the gospels. And then the New Testament epistles. And then finally ending in the book of Revelation. And you know what we see in the book of Revelation? It ends the exact same way the Song of Solomon ends. Kevin Hammett read it for us earlier, didn't he? It ends with with a warning to hear the words spoken by our beloved Jesus. And then, much like the bride's invitation, we read, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Make haste. Flee to me. Friends, as we consider the beautiful story of the man and the woman in Solomon's song, we are meant, as I've argued from the beginning of the series, to cast our eyes to the greater love story of Christ and His church. We, His people... His bride are now left waiting. We're not there yet. We have not consummated our love with Him yet. We're left waiting and anticipating with love-filled hope the coming of our perfect groom, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. When He comes, oh, it'll be a love like we've never experienced it before, a love far more powerful and far exceeding any love here known on earth. The Song of Solomon hints at it. It it, it points there with, with I think, shadows and muted colors. But, But once he arrives, think about it, once he arrives, and we stand before him with peace in our minds because we've kept our treasure of faith and love for him pure, friends, that day will far outshine the intimacy being described here. Friends, God isn't love, or God isn't done uh, with his love story, and he is love. Friends, I want to remind us as we come to the end this morning that God is love and still working out everything perfectly for his purpose and glory. And he will bring everything to an end when love will, see, will be seen perfectly face-to-face in the coming of Christ. Uh, This week has certainly been a week marred and marked by a lack of love. But I think we can, with real hope, look forward to the consummation uh, consummation of true love. I want to remind us one more time before we end that this evening, from 6 to 7, we will, during our evening service, uh, give ourselves to prayer as a church, and thinking through uh, the issues that have surrounded us this past week, but doing so from a standpoint of knowing the Prince of Peace, uh, Jesus, who is God, who is love, and having that motivate us differently from the rest of the world. Let's pray.